Tonight is the second part of our three-part mini-series with Rachel Korazim. Uh, many of you were with us yesterday, and then tomorrow at 10 a.m. we'll be across the street. Our topic is A Tale of Love and Darkness by Amos Oz. It's a particular topic I chose for Lizzie Silver. This is Steve Silver over there, who's married to Lizzie, and Lizzie's not here because she's sick. So um, we'll, we're, we're dedicating this lecture in honor of, of your wife because Lizzie's the one that organized our Israel book um, group that we've had now for two years, in which you've read many books. Um, and I've been introduced to some great authors I never would have read without um, Lizzie selecting them. I think we'll be going into a third year, so if you're interested in learning more about that, just email me and I'll put you on Lizzie's list. So um, other than please turn off your phones um, so we can do the program. I'm not going to do another introduction to save time. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Many of you know Rachel and know that she is a terrific teacher of um, Israeli literature. I asked her, do you only do poetry? She said, of course not. But if I do a book, then I've got to do 450 pages, which Steve Shulkoff would never read. Faith would definitely read. One of the Cornells would possibly read. I think the Stearns would both read. Norman Wade would peruse. And the Vogelfangers are too busy to even yeah. know what that is. But they would show up to hear about it. That's how it works. So um, you do do literature. One thing I will tell you, though, is I was um, over dinner talking to Rachel, and I told her about going to Israel, October 2020, how I'm trying to launch it for Yom Ha'atzma'ut, which is May 9th, so that's in five days. I've got the program, Steve. It's all done. And I said, too bad we don't have any new programs that you could do, Rachel. I have her in the program doing some stuff. I told her about Yad Vashem visit. He was on that visit. We won't go into details about that. And then she said, oh, you know, I do walking tours. Like, you know, if you're reading A Pigeon, of the boy, a pigeon and a Boy, I do a walking tour in Jerusalem regarding that book and the literature. So now we may have to add a few things in before I release the program. With that, please join me in welcoming Rachel Korazim to Orange County. Shavuot. Shavuot, everybody. Great to see you. Thank you. And indeed, Ari, this particular session was created in the year 2016 when one of the groups that keeps coming back to Israel every year from a conservative synagogue in Boston, actually in Newton, Massachusetts, I should say, a Temple Emmanuel, and those are totally crazy people, because no crazy error. I'll tell you why. Just this particular criterion, just one, is because the Hartman program is a heavy-duty program, and I already glanced through your program, and I saw that you do give them some free time, which Hartman rarely does. <laughs> So in the Hartman a community leadership program, which they, those crazy people attend every year, there is one free afternoon. And this is when they ask me to do a special tour for them. So they don't even get the, free, the one free afternoon. And every year there is a whole debate because I do these literary tours. And in the year 2016 was the year when Natalie Portman was engaged in creating the movie uh, over A Tale of Love and Darkness by Amos Oz. So I said to the powers that be at the temple, I said, you know what? Since this is gonna come about, people will go to see the movie. Why don't we do an Amos Oz tour in the footsteps of A Tale of Love and Darkness and they thought it was a great idea. So you actually want to take your people from the classroom to the class, to the tours with me. But with this particular group, it was the other way around. We started by planning a tour. So I will even show you how, when this session was created, it was created for a tour, okay? So Amos Oz, who passed away last December, you know that, was born in the year 1939. I do not give you these nitty-gritty details of when he was born and when he passed away, etc., and where, unless it was important. Because Amos has started publishing, I'm gonna say in the 60s, which is when he is 30, and beginning of the 70s, 30-something, and publishes nov first short stories, novels, etc., dealing with the reality of life in Israel, dealing with kibbutz life where he had lived, dealing with political issues, like for example, in the land of Israel, which is, he wrote in 1982. And none of the books ever 
touch on his personal life. This book is published in 2002. The man was born in 39. By the time this is published, he is a world-known writer. And yet he had not summoned the courage, the energy, whatever it takes to create that artwork, which is autobiographical. This is not only an autobiography, it's still a novel that stands on its own, but it is totally based on the autobiography of Amos Oz. And I know I'm not doing a spoiler because you shouldn't read A Tale of Love and Darkness to know what happened at the end. Because I will tell you what happened at the end. Because what had happened at the end is the beginning of a 12-year-old whose mother commits suicide. And he comes to the story at 60 or 50-something for the first time trying to peel off all the layers that he had superposed on his wound to look back at that time and what had brought about the fact and it, it's in the book and you will see it and the question is there. The big question is, was I not enough to keep her in this world? How bad it could have been for her that it was not good reason enough for her to linger and to stay because I was here. And this, when he's ready to face that question, he will read a tale of, he will write a tale of love and darkness. And this is why I'm telling you when he was born, remember this is where I started from about three minutes ago? Because the early days that we are looking at, and this is the beginning of our tour, will take us to Mosquera Tavraham, a neighborhood of Jerusalem. Bet described to those of you who have been to Jerusalem, you know what the central bus station is? In Jerusalem, you never go to the central bus station because you're pampered. But at the entrance to the city, there is a, it's not a great place, let me tell you. Behind that, even less of a great place, not too far from the Chala bakery place that you go to occasionally, is a neighborhood that now is totally, totally ultra-Orthodox. But not in the years when Amos Oz is growing up there, when he's a child there. It's a very multicultural neighborhood with secular people and modern Orthodox and Zionist, left-wing, right-wing, etc. So he is taking us through the books, not only into his soul layers, but into the layers of the city of Jerusalem, not the archeological, King David and Jeremiah and whatever as you will do when you travel but the sociological development of the city in the last century, if you wish, or even less than a century. So that is one thing. The other thing, if you know even a little bit of, about Amos Oz, even if you haven't read any of the 200, 300, 400 pages long books, you may have heard that he, throughout his life until a few months ago, when he passed, actually it's already six months, he passed in December, he was one of the clearest, loudest voices for peace in Israel. By virtue of that, that would mark him as a left-wing person, because I don't know why, but somehow left-wing is associated with being a peacenik. I, how did that ever come about? I don't know. But anyway, this is it. So one of the things you will need to know and discover that he does not come from that background. That he comes totally from what we call a revisionist family by which we do not mean the revision of history but the revision of a revisionist party and I'm not going to say the Begin party. Menachem Begin. I'm going to say the Jabotinsky, a generation earlier, the initiator of this nationalist, Zionist, anti-Bengurian, 
kind of Zionist party. This is where he's coming from, okay? So this is where we are going. As we are going, we will read this. I hope you all have your source sheets, and if you do not, maybe we can help you get some. There are some at the entrance, but you really want, will want them. Maybe you could bring a couple of copies for, all right. So we are going to that neighborhood of Jerusalem, and we are going to go to the years when Amos was six, seven, eight years of age. These are early memories. And now you have to be, and I will help you, I will hold your hand through it, because I told you already that he is starting to age when he is writing it. He is an author who already masters his craftsmanship. He knows how to put together a novel by then. But then he wants to recreate for us the time in his life, in his life when he knew nothing about such things. He was just a child. So when we are listening to a given tone or a given voice in the book, I will stop asking you occasionally who is talking. Eight-year-old or 60-year-old? What are we hearing here? Is this Amos Oz Hansite sitting in his home in Arad, which is where he lived in those years, thinking back about his life as a child in Jerusalem? Or is this really recapturing the authentic voice of the child? And you will see that it's not that difficult to discern. And teachers of literature will know. So what we are looking at to speak professionally a little bit about literature is that when we are listening to the narrator's voice, we want to keep track of the point of view. Whose voice are we hearing? Who is talking to us? Let us go. As you go, I want you to carry with you all your notions about life in pre-state Israel was like, you know? Bring back to the surface all your memories from Jewish summer camp, yours, your children's, your grandchildren's, about pioneers and dancing hora and drying swamps and picking oranges and fighting in the Palmach, you know, that kind of repertoire, because these are the appropriate years for that. Late 30s, beginning of the 40s, we are prior to the state, Ben-Gurion had not yet declared. The Brits are still around. World War II still raging, then over. You need to capture the place and the moment. I was born and bred in a tiny, low-ceilinged, ground-floor flat. My parents slept on a sofa bed that filled their room almost from wall to wall when it was opened up each evening. Early every morning, they used to shut away this bed deep into itself, hide the bedcloth in the chest underneath, turn the mattress over, press it all tight shut, and conceal the hole under a light gray cover then scatter a few embroidered oriental cushions on top so that all evidence of their night's sleep disappeared. Remember my question from a minute ago? Who is talking? The young one? I was born. At what point in this paragraph is the old man taking over? because the old man is taking over. Somewhere among these lines, the old man is taking over. It sounds in the beginning as if he's really trying to go back there. I was born, etc. ground floor flat. My parents slept. Actually, by the way, I was raised in an apartment like this, where my parents slept. We, my sister and I, had the one bedroom and my parents slept in the living room, and then every morning the beds had to be pushed in, etc. So if you know that way of life. Lady over there in the back, you were raising your hand with a comment or a question? You asked a question. Yeah, so what is your answer? I think when he starts getting 
I agree with you, but I would like to point to you what I think is the moment of the switch. And it's hard to discern in the English because there is something here that is lost in translation, or I would even have the chutzpah and say mistaken in translation. The point is now that there is a nightlife and there is a day life, okay? And we are starting in the morning, also in his life morning. I was born, all right, in low ceiling, ground floor flat. Is that how you describe or imagine to yourself life in Eretz Israel in the 20th century, this darkness, low ceiling, narrow, or maybe our images were totally different, like open air and sun and, you know, sand and winds and what have you. No, it sounds almost like a shtetl in Yerushalayim, okay? My parents slept on a sofa bed that filled the room almost from wall to wall when it was opened up each evening. Early every morning, they used to shut away this bed deep into itself. Here's the point. The Hebrew here uses the verb they would lehadchik. Now, the Hebrew language has words for pushing, for shutting, for putting underneath. Yet the word the author, old one, is using in the Hebrew is the word that one uses in therapy to suppress. They would suppress the bedcloth underneath. And it's missing here in the English, but you were very right in pointing out as he goes into the detail, he will reach this point where all of the night intimacy needs to be pushed underneath. I don't know if I've made this comment here yesterday or probably in another session elsewhere, but great novels, even if they have 400 pages, when you are done reading them and you will go back after you're finished to the first page and you will look carefully, you will see that everything that the novel had told you was already on the first page. And Amos Oz knows his craft. This story is about the fact that I am the child of two adults who couldn't face their intimacy during daytime. I am child, a child who grew up in a home, narrow, low ceiling, in which every sign of intimacy needed to be pushed out of way, not to be there, not enough. And then they would hide the bedclothes and the chest underneath, turn the mattress over, turn the mattress over. There is one side you sleep on, and then there is the other side. Even that is not to be seen, not to be touched, okay? Conceal the hole under a light gray cover, then scatter a few embroidered, and here to me the key word is oriental cushions on top. They do not come from the Levant. They are not Oriental people. They are Ashkenazim, Litvaks, as a matter of fact. They are from Lithuania. But in the, and that's probably pushed underneath. And at morning, you will put a light cover, not dark like your memories, not dark and heavy like the furniture back there in Eastern Europe, and then you will scatter a few embroidery, what, Arabic embroidery, oriental. We are from here, we belong, we are like everybody else. That's already older Amos Oz. An eight-year-old would not pay attention to these details, okay? Oriental cushions on top, so all evidence of their night's sleep disappeared. And that is totally the older man now sort of giving himself accountability. This is what happened every single day in my childhood. Intimacy was covered. Yeah. The book, when I read it, left me very depressed. I'm sorry. The impression 
Parkway Museum, mm -hmm. that it was so, as you said, lacking of sunlight or anything. And the oriental pillows didn't do it. I mean, of you, course not. You could not know. No, they're a cover-up. They're makeup. They're a band-aid. Of course not. Yeah. But even though he was now telling it from a 60-year-old, but he is going back on memories he had. He was very observant as a child. And always, sure. But now looking back. He He's sort of pulling them out, fishing them out but from that's that. That's the part that the child can But this is the introduction. He is now putting himself on stage for us to see. This is what gave birth to me. These are the people who shaped my early years. And later on in the later chapters, these are the people I ran away from to the kibbutz at 15. I mean, mother dies, 14. After two years with his father in that apartment, he runs away to the open air, oriental cushions, cushions whatever, kibbutz. But this is where I come from. Okay. So, in this way, their bedroom also served as a study, library, dining room, and living room. And now, we are coming to his room. Perceptions, memories, old man. Opposite this room was my little green room. I love green room, because if you know the meaning of that expression, you know that it has a particular meaning in the world of theater. The green room is where the actors get ready to go on the stage. It's totally lost on the Hebrew reader because we do not use that expression, a yarok, in theater. But through the translation, suddenly it emerged to me that he is ready to go on stage now for us, okay? And his room might have been painted green also, okay? So library, dining room, living room, and uh, opposite this room was my little green room half taken up with a big-bellied wardrobe, a narrow, low passage, dark and slightly curved, like an escape tunnel from prison, linked the little kitchenette and toilet to these two small rooms. Like, seriously? This is how you remember your childhood? That going between your parents' room and your room, it was like a prisoner's tunnel? What's going on? What is hidden in that house? A faint light bulb imprisoned in an iron cage cast a gloomy half-light on this passage even during daytime. Where is Jerusalem? Where is this blinding light that we always have in Israel? Not in his memories. Maybe it was there, but this is not how he remembers it. Uh, at the front, uh, at the front, both rooms had just a single window, guarded by metal blinds, squinting into catch a glimpse of the view to the east, but seeing only dust, dusty cypress trees and the low wall of roughly dressed stones. So you are in Jerusalem. You're supposed to look to the east, you know, which is what we do symbolically. Uh-uh, forget it. Just a few stones and a half dead tree. Through a tiny opening high up in the black walls was the kitchenette and toilet peered out into the little prison yard, surrounded by high walls and paved in concrete, where a pale geranium planted in a rusty olive can was gradually dying for want of a single ray of sunlight. Look at the failed attempts to be a little bit agricultural, because you know the big dream of the Jews of Eastern Europe was to come to the land of Israel and make things grow. Well, let me tell you, says Amos Oz, in my case, even that one single part, how do you pronounce it, geranium or geranium? geranium, even that they couldn't make grow, you know? We were really total failures as of becoming Israelis. We couldn't make even the one plant grow. Well, Ben-Gurion went all the way to the desert and made it bloom. Well, we couldn't do even the one pot. 
Okay. Ah, yeah, yeah, tiny openings. So, on the stills of these tiny openings, we always kept jars of pickled guernics and the stubborn cactus in a cracked vase that served as a flower pot. So, the geranium we cannot make work. What we can do is what shtetl Jews do, you know, pickles. Okay, that was successful, that we did. And the sabra, which would have been the symbol of being here, ah, that was doing miserable and poorly as well. So between these three greens, if you wish, the geranium that is dying, the pickles that are thriving, and the sabra that is doing very poorly, here you have it. This is who we want to be, this is who we are. Now comes my favorite part. Um, before you go there. Yeah. On the previous page, you really skipped over, he talks about peered out into a little prison yard. That's yeah, I, I didn't skip because I just want to make sure that I will get to the part that I do. And I thought I addressed already the sense of thinking about your childhood as living in a prison. Okay, and there is more and more references, but thank you, sir. Books filled our home. Hallelujah. We have no light. Feels like a prison. Plants will not grow. No sun ray. What do we have? Books. Great. Is this what we, became, we did Aliyah for? Didn't you want to be pioneers? Didn't you want to build Zion, you know, and the Jewish state? You just schlepped the books from Europe all the way here to continue being that which you have been? What is this? And he's totally critical of this way of life and will be for a long time until at a certain age, 30-something, with the first publications of his books, he will realize that he too lives in a room that is full of books, just like his father did. And he will address that in the last interview that he had given a couple of weeks before he died. But at this point, he is really, ah. My father could read in 16 or 17 languages and could speak 11, all with a Russian accent. My mother spoke four or five languages and read seven or eight. They conversed in Russian or Polish when they did not want me to understand, which was most of the time. When my mother referred to a stallion in Hebrew in my hearing, my father rebuked her furiously in Russian. What are you doing, you know? What's the matter with you? You can see that the boy is just there. Out of cultural considerations, they mostly read books in German or English, and they presumably dreamed in Yiddish. Now take this, because I was talking to you about layers in Amos Oz's soul. I was talking to you about layers in Jerusalem neighborhood, and now we want to talk about language hierarchy. Out there, books in 16 languages. Reading books, of course, your Goethe's in German and your Shakespeare's in English. When you talk to each other, you go back to the languages you spoke at home, which were Polish and Russian. But I know, says the 60-year-old, that they must have had their dreams in Yiddish. And as much as they covered the intimacy of their sheets, they covered the knowledge of Yiddish. Because they all came from shtetls originally. And language, Yiddish was Mamelushan. But the Jews of the Enlightenment at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, did not want to be associated with the Yiddish speakers. They were speaking Polish and Russian and German, and English, and Hungarian, the case of my family. My mother coming from Budapest will always make a point to say that she only learned Yiddish here in Israel. That they never spoke Yiddish in Budapest. 
Yiddish was associated with rural Eastern Hungary, where my father, whom she had divorced, came from. So those were, you know, the, the Yiddish speakers. We in Budapest spoke Hungarian. I can tell you that now that I think back, she's gone nine years. But when I think back on things that she has said, there were Yiddish expressions all over the place in every other sentence. And I did not even know that they were Yiddish. I thought that they were Hungarian until I discovered that they had been Yiddish. Yiddish was suppressed. And in Israel of the early years, not only was it suppressed, Ben-Gurion wanted to outlaw it. Ben-Gurion intended to create a law to forbid the use of Yiddish. We were Israelis, we were to speak Hebrew. The solidest fact of the treatment of Yiddish in the early years of Israel is that Jigen and Shomachir, the great actors of Yiddish, who had made Aliyah after the Holocaust, moved to New York. They couldn't make a living, although the audience was there, because you, 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 they couldn't rent a hall, they couldn't advertise. So, on the, so my parents, they wouldn't let anybody know, but I know that they would have dreamt in Yiddish. I know that about them, just like the old man, just like me at my old age, knowing that they had Yiddish, no matter how much my mother had denied it. Okay, but maybe they feared, oh sorry, but the only language they taught me was Hebrew. Maybe they feared that the knowledge of languages would expose me to the blandishments of Europe, that wonderful, murderous continent. And you have in blue underneath another line. Because I started teaching this before the hike and everything, immediately after the book had appeared, when there was not yet an official translation of A Tale of Love and Darkness. And at the time, I worked, uh, my assistant, we used to call them secretaries at the time, but after that it somehow became inappropriate to say secretary, was Shula Berman from South Africa, who had translated for me pieces that I needed to teach. And since she was not an official translator, she never had put her name to the translation. And this is why I mention her. And I think that the original translation that she had done for me, not the official, of this particular line, she got it better than the official translator. So look at the blue. Perhaps they feared that knowledge of other languages would expose me to the temptations of fabulous, lethal Europe. And now you have it all encapsulated. Those people who barely made it before the Holocaust. And they were so highly hoping. They were the enlightenment. They were the generations of the children already, of the generations that believed that if we only went to their universities, if we only spoke their languages properly, if we only dressed like them, if we only were Jews in our home and human beings outside, to quote Mendelssohn, Moshe, not Felix, they will accept us. And then came the Holocaust. And therefore, how will you protect your child from being tempted but the fabulous, lethal Europe. And by looking at this sentence and pulling it apart, if we were student in class, your friend here and myself, the English teachers, will put it on the blackboard and will say, what are the characteristics of Europe? Is it the fabulous that we need to maintain? Or is it the lethal that we need to be afraid of? Shall I tell you that the same applies for American Jews? 
the temptation, the attraction of the land that never had a pogrom, the land of all those promises, and then when the lethal start looking through the creeks. Yes, sir. German, chas v'chalila. Why the fear of speaking Yiddish? No, speaking Yiddish is one level. The other level is not learning any other language. The fear of Yiddish is because that will look like diaspora Jews, exiled Jews, and we don't want them in Israel. That's the Zionist perspective. The fear of knowing other languages, these are two levels, two fears. One of them is the Ben-Gurion Zionist fear that, God forbid, we shall continue being like shtetl Jews because in Israel we need to be the new Jew. The other fear is being tempted by the cultures of Europe and then the Holocaust. So therefore, better speak only Hebrew. Don't attempt the German, the English, the French, the, the Polish, the Russian, because it will kill you at the end if you believe. Two separate fears. Thank you for your question, which gave me the opportunity to, to show these two separate fears. Okay, so this is really the opening chapter. And I needed the following one for a short walk. Because this we did, and you can see from the picture, in front of the house where Amos Oz was born. Which, believe it or not, is on Amos Street. And if you think, and maybe there will come a time in the future when the municipality of Jerusalem, God willing, will maybe reconstruct that house, which is really in shambles, and maybe put a sign to the fact that the great author was born there, and then people will start believing that the street was named after him. But it's the other way around. The whole neighborhood has names of prophets, okay, from Tanakh, from Bible. And it so happened that he was born there. The next scene that I will want to reach before we are done is the pharmacy scene, which is the most famous of the first part of the book and that we are doing no matter what tonight. We have to. But you want to, I wanted my, my audiences as we were walking between the two and I, I was looking and found in the book a walking thing and Amos Oz's description of this tension between Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv, but through the metaphor of how people, Jewish people, walk in Jerusalem and how they walk in Tel Aviv. And I think that here I have no hesitation to tell you that it's already the very mature Amos Oz in this particular one. He uses all his humor, irony, and whatever, use the, the mocking of cliches of the time that I will show you in a minute, which is very characteristic of his writing, especially about the kibbutz, but now at a later age, it is also transferred to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. In Jerusalem, people always walked rather like mourners at the funeral or latecomers at the concert. Would you please put these two metaphors one next to the other? Because on one hand, they are so different. Like being late to a concert, you know, ah, not so pleasant, but not the end of the world, right? While a funeral, now that's serious business. And your body language should show that you are respectful and you're not, you know, like that, schwitzing. But in the mind of the writer, it's very similar to how our body reacts to being late at a concert, especially when you come from a very well-educated uh, European family. You know that you're not supposed to be late for a concert, right? And disturb other people. It's totally impolite and unacceptable, and therefore you want to cringe a little bit and to be as small as you can and not disturbing. And now he's pulling these two metaphors, the mourning and the wanting to diminish yourself, and says this is what people look like when they walk in Jerusalem. And now comes the detail. 
First they put down the tip of their shoe and tested the ground. You know, Jerusalem is a serious business. You do not just walk. Who knows? Then once they had lowered their foot, they were in no hurry to move it. We had waited 2,000 years to get, gain a foothold in Jerusalem. I could add, you know, like the other Israeli cliche, haven't we suffered enough kind of thing, you know? Actually, Amos is literally making fun of Zionist language, like the first time after 2,000 years. So he looks at the people, how they walk in Jerusalem, and said, they are conscious of that. And once you put down your foot, you are not going to lift it that fast. 2,000 years. And therefore, they were unwilling to give it up. Look at how contemporary this is, the unwillingness of giving up anything. If we picked up our foot, someone else might come along and snatch our little strip of land. You know all those other people with the 22 other countries, shall I continue the cliches, okay? Or the Crusaders and the Ottomans and the Brits and who knows what and the Mamelukes. We have experience. We are no spring chicken. We know what we know and we are not going to lift our foot that fast. On the other hand, once you have lifted your foot, do not be in a hurry to put it down again. Who can tell what menacing nest of vipers you might step on? For thousands of years, we have paid with our blood for our impetuousness. Time and time again, we have fallen into the hands of our enemies because we put our feet down without looking where we were putting them. That more or less was the way people walked in Jerusalem. Here you have, in a nutshell, the whole Jewish experience of 2,000 years encapsulated in the way Amos Oz describes for us how one walks in Jerusalem, carrying the whole heaviness of Jewish history on you. Ah, but Tel Aviv. Oi, Tel Aviv. The whole city was one big grasshopper. The people leaped by, leaped by. So did the houses, the streets, the squares, the sea breeze, the sand, the avenues, and even the clouds in the sky. So sometimes if you, like myself, excuse the immodesty, are sort of com comfortable in the literature of your country, you can easily discern when one author is having a literary conversation with another by making reference to something that Israeli readership will pick up on. Even you will, had you known Hebrew. Have you ever heard about Nomi Shemer? Okay, so Nomi Shemer composed once a Tel Aviv song. It's called Ira Levana, White City. No racial references. It's just because of the Bauhaus, the style in which Tel Aviv was built, that was all white. It was set to music, but you don't want me to sing. And the very famous song, Nomi Shemer. And the first line goes, I'm doing the Hebrew, then I'm translating. Miketsef gal ve'anana baniti irli levana. Of foam of waves and wispy clouds, I built a city white and fair. This is a story of Tel Aviv. So if you look at Jerusalem and say, what do you mean, Jerusalem? The prophets, King David, Abraham, the binding of Isaac, all happened here, the stone, we are all, you carry it on. Tel Aviv is almost like a pagan birth, born out of the sea, you know? Like Venus of Milo. It's beautiful, we came, there was nothing, and then out of Gornisht, we and we don't speak Yiddish. We built the city. I, I wish I had the time I need. Can I go over by five minutes? Okay. 
There is an Israeli writer not translated that much into English and not very popular, and the poor guy could not express himself in under 500 pages. So <laughs> it's called Moshe Shamir, and he, he wrote like heavy-duty historical novels, one of them known about the Hasmonean dynasty and so on. You, I'm not recommending. It's, it's heavy reading, and there is better stuff to do with your time. However, he wrote a thinner book called Elik Chapters, and it's about his brother who was killed in the War of Independence. And he even does not call it a book or a novel. He says Elik was the name of the brother. Chapters, you know, just memories, whatever, that I put together. But the line that opens that book has become, I would say, the classical quote for every Zionist literature teacher who wants to show that hatred of Yiddish, that wanting to be a new Jew, etc. You will start that class, that semester, as a teacher of Hebrew literature in Hebrew U or Tel Aviv University, whatever, with the following. Moshe Shamir, in his book, Elik Chapters, starts by saying, Elik nolad mihayam. Elik was born of the sea. Seriously? Like, Elik did not have a grandfather from Lithuania? Like, what are you talking about, Moshe Shamir? The need of that generation to present itself as not carrying all the heavy memories of either Jerusalem or diaspora, but this fresh kibbutz or Tel Aviv-like birth is here. And Amos Oz, for that readership which is fluent in this language, uses a classic because when you make the reference to the clouds in the sky, immediately the tune of Nomi Shemer sort of plays in your head. People in Jerusalem talked about Tel Aviv with envy and pride, with admiration, but almost confidentially, as though the city were some kind of a crucial secret project of the Jewish people that it was best not to talk about too much. After all, the wall have ears. British mandate Palestine. You know, careful. Spies and enemy agent could be lurking around in every corner. We have came up with the miracle notion of Tel Aviv, but nobody needs to know before we are ready, okay? and we are doing about 10 more minutes. So the telephone conversation at the pharmacy. It's lucky that I have you guys in the room because sometimes I'm looking not to make an ageist remark, but to think an ageist thought. I'm looking for people for whom I need to explain that there used to be a time when telephones were not carried in your pocket. <laughs> when they were attached to walls and it did not come with you, you had to go to it. On top of that, they did not exist in every home, especially in British Mandate Jerusalem. But luckily there was one in the pharmacy. And therefore, if you wanted to make a phone call, you needed to go to the pharmacy. Now in the hike, in the walk that we do, if we do this walk in Jerusalem, the pharmacy building is still there. And guess what? There is a pharmacy. It's still there after all these years. For years, we had a regular arrangement for a telephonic link with the family in Tel Aviv because we had other links. But this was a telephonic one. We used to phone them every three or four months even though we didn't have a phone and neither did they. So now you understand that in this telephone lacking culture, a telephone conversation becomes a ritual. It's something that you plan and that you will do in spite of the fact that neither of you has it. First of all, we used to write to Auntie Chaya and Uncle Tzvi to let them know that on, say, the 19th of the month, which was Wednesday, to be specific, and on, uh, which was Wednesday, and on Wednesday, Tzvi left his work at the health clinic at three, so that at five, we would phone from our chemist to their chemist. 
The letter was sent well in advance, and then we waited for a reply. In their letter, Auntie Chaya and Uncle Zvi assured us that Wednesday the 19th suited them perfectly, and they would be waiting at the chemist little before five, and not to worry if we didn't manage to phone on the dot of five. They wouldn't run away. So I want you to catch this notion that the important stuff will not be said on the telephone. The real link is in letters. And these people who are anxious all the time because of their past, and if somebody is not there on time, they start to worry. So in the letter, Aunt Chaya says to her sister, who will end up killing herself, not to worry, not to be anxious. Even if they're not there, it will be fine. You can feel the tensions. You can feel the nervousness. None of that will be transmitted in the telephone. These people know each other. They are connected. They are writing letters. Okay? And it's all there already in the letters. I don't remember whether we put on our best clothes for the expedition to the chemist for the phone call to Tel Aviv, but it wouldn't surprise me if we did. Old Amos Oz thinking back, okay? It was a solemn undertaking. As early as Sunday, Remember, the phone is on, on Wednesday. Before my father would say to my, the Wednesday, Sunday before, my father would say to my mother, Fania, stop for a minute. Fania is the name of the mother. And if you know that, or if you have read Jews and Words, which is a book created by Amos Oz and Fania Oz, his daughter, you will know that he will end up naming his daughter after his mother. But Fania is a shtetl name. And Fania was born on a kibbutz. You know what heavy load he had put on that kibbutznik Sabra little girl's shoulders, calling her Fania? How uncomfortable that must have been when everybody else was Ruti and Danat and Tuti and whatever, and she was Fania? But for now, we don't have her yet. It's only the mother, Fania. You haven't forgotten that this is the week we are phoning to Tel Aviv. On Monday, my mother would say, Arie, father, do not be late home the day after tomorrow. Don't mess things up. Like, don't I know you? You always forget. So I'm warning you already. And on Tuesday, they would both say to me, Amos, just don't make any surprises for us. You hear? Just don't be ill. You hear? Don't catch cold or fall over until after tomorrow afternoon. You can be ill afterwards. You can fall the next day. But God forbid for the telephone conversation, because if they will hear you have a cold, or that you fell, they will worry. Because we are the worrying kind. And that evening, they would say to me, go to sleep early, so you'll be in good shape for the phone call. We don't want you to sound as though you haven't been eating properly. God forbid they will worry that we do not have enough food. Because whatever you do or say or breathe is a reason for worrying. So they would build up the excitement. We lived in Amos, Oz, in, in Amos Street, and the chemist shop was five minutes walk away on Sefania Street, another prophet. But by three o'clock, my father would say to my mother, don't start anything new now, so you won't be in a rush. I'm perfectly okay, but what about you? With your books, you might forget all about it. Me? Forget? I'm looking at the clock every few minutes. And Amos will remind me, here I am, just five or six years old, and already I have to assume the historic responsibility. I didn't have a watch, how could I? 
And so every few minutes, I run to the kitchen through the tunnel, remember? The prison tunnel, to see what the clock said. And then I would announce like the countdown to a spaceship launch. Who is talking? Who is talking? Spaceship. The old one. In the 40s, they don't have spaceships yet. The six-year-old Amos Oz doesn't know about spaceships. It's only the old one. 25 minutes to go, 20 minutes to go, 15 to go, 10 and a half to go. And at that point, we would get up, lock the front door carefully, and set off the three of us. Turn left at Mr. Oster's grocery store. Still exists, not Mr. Oster, but a grocery store shop, then right into Zecharia Street, left to Malachi Street, right to Zephani Street, and straight into the chemist to announce, good afternoon to you, Mr. Heinemann, probably Ayeke from Germany, who came out right in time. How are you? We have come to phone. He knew perfectly well, of course, that on Wednesday, we would be coming to phone our relatives from Tel Aviv. Because I assume during the week before, the mother had stopped by twice every day to remind Mr. Heinemann. Three more minutes? Father would say, I will dial now. And mother said, it's too soon, Arie. There will be, there were still a few minutes to go. He would reply, yes, but they have to be, we have to be put through. There was no direct dialing at the time. Mother, yes, but what if for once we are put through right away? So even that is a cause for worry, if you don't have to wait. And they are not yet there. Father replied, in that case, we shall simply try again later. Mother, no, they will worry. They will think they have missed us. While they were still arguing, suddenly it was almost five o'clock, Father picked up the receiver, standing up to do so. You don't sit down and talk on the phone. You stand up and said to the operator, good afternoon, madam. Would you please give me Tel Aviv 648? Yeah, this is the three-digit or something like that. We were still living in the three-digit world. Sometimes the operator would answer, would you please wait a few minutes, sir? The postmaster is on the line or Mr. Sitton, or Mr. Nashashibi. Now you would expect me to run ahead and not stop at this sentence, but I will. Because the mentioning of these three names is again layering of status, strata in Jerusalem. The postmaster is obviously a Brit. They are the rulers, top. Mr. Sitton. Siton is a Sephardi name, but not as in Yemenite, not as in Moroccan coming in the 50s. These are the true Sephardim who lived in Jerusalem for generations. They are high class. They are aristocracy. This, these are the families that would not marry their daughter to the son of Ben Yehuda, the one who revived the language because he was a Ashkenazi and that was not in their honor. And the third one is Mr. Nashashibi, an important Palestinian family. And they too come before us, the closeness from Lithuania. So just that. And we felt quite nervous. Whatever would they think of us I could visualize this single line that connected Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and via Tel Aviv with the rest of the world. And if this one line was engaged, we were cut off from the world. The line wound its way over wasteland and rocks, over hills and valleys. And I thought it was a great miracle. I trembled. What if a wild animal came in the night and bit through the line? or if wicked Arabs cut it, or if the rain got into it, or there was a fire, who could tell? There was this line winding along, so vulnerable, unguarded, baking in the sun, who could tell? I felt full of gratitude to the man who had put up this line, 
so brave-hearted, so dexterous, it's not so easy to put a line from Tel Aviv, from Yerushalayim to Tel Aviv. Is he talking about the phone line? When he's talking about feeling of being cut off the world, about fear, about concern, and about the total inability to connect Yerushalayim to Tel Aviv. I think that's a good moment for us to stop for tonight. Thank you very much. Please continue and read the whole book. <laughs>